Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Good morning. Not that. Good morning. Good morning. That, that was halfway there. Good morning. Good Thank you. Um, before I begin uh, the fire and brimstone part of my remarks, I want to, is that how this works? No? Um, I want to correct actually something that, uh, that Barbara said about me, not something that she said, but something that I said. So when I was in this church in Jamaica Plain, uh, I don't remember, but someone apparently asked, um, what do I do if I get arrested? So someone in a pew sitting, like you're all sitting, asked, what do I do if I get arrested? And I apparently answered, which I want to do, uh, call me, here's my phone number, you can call the National Lawyers Guild, you can call the ACLU, and we will be there. That is the wrong answer. That is the procedural answer. That's the analytical answer. That's the answer that too many years of law school has, has trained me to say, well, this is the answer directly to your question. And that's the answer from a brain, right? But the answer to that question really should come from a heart. The answer to the question, what should I do if I get arrested, is what should you do if you don't get arrested, right? What do you, should you do in this moment? If you were in 1968 and you didn't get arrested and you were in Birmingham, if you were in Selma, if you weren't on the bridge? I think that's the question. So the answer to that question, I will correct myself now, is say, the answer to what should you do if you, if you get arrested, if you, uh, if you get arrested, what should you do if you don't get arrested? You should be there. We should be in the streets. We should be in the police stations. We should be in the jails. We should be marching. We should be fighting. We should be struggling. And we should be winning. So that's just correcting a mistake of mine. Now for the remarks. In 1969, uh, on December 28th, um, Yoko Ono and John Lennon actually uh, hired, a, you know, rented the space on a billboard, put a billboard up in Times Square. Um, and I'm sure some of you know what that billboard said. It said, the war is over. And then below it, in really small letters and parentheses, it said, if you want it to be. If you want it to be. And people struggled. Um, and maybe not soon enough, but that struggle was won with people all across the world, with you know, Vietnamese people, Cambodian people, Laotian people, people in solidarity in the United States, soldiers, black, white, Latino, and other races, struggled and brought uh, what was an, an ongoing genocide of you know, Southeast Asian people, brought that war to an end. Um, today, something is happening. I was just a little while ago, I was marching down the street um, on Boylston, just by this church, and in streets, in churches, in mosques, in synagogues, um, in, uh, uh, actually there was just a bit of an uprising at Harvard Law on a panel, uh, people shouting down the mayor of Ferguson who came to uh, Cambridge and thought he could speak and speak his piece. People weren't having that, right? Young black people said, you're a liar, you're a pig. You've done things and sprayed people with tear gas and maced people and beat people. And the, the chief of police of Ferguson and the mayor were there. 
And they said, not on our watch. You can't come to our town and do that. Um, and this is a movement that's led by black people. It's led by black queer people, black women, black young people. And it's fierce, and it's proud, and it doesn't apologize. It doesn't say, well, you know, we need to be dressed in a nice way, and we need to bring our message in this way, and we need to respond to this politician in a formal way because they've responded to us. It's saying, no, we can do this the way we want to do it, and we're going to fight, and we're going to win. And we're not going to win some little thing. We're going to win the whole thing because we're going to make our people free. Um, and this is something I think that in my lifetime, I've never really seen um, this level uh, of, of activism by young people of color um, and by uh, allies, or I might uh, stretch that word and say accomplices. Um, people joining in, white folks, um, non-black people of color, standing up and saying, we're not going to take this anymore. Um, actually, just recently, uh, just from around the world, I've seen uh, folks in Japan, a Black Life Matters march in Japan. Um, some friends of mine sent me uh, Black Life Matters, people standing out with signs from Poland, uh, some other folks from Italy, um, of course, from all over the continent of Africa, South America, um, uh, folks in, uh, in Delhi and India and, and other places in India, um, standing up and saying, in America, black lives should matter. Um, and I just want to talk about a specific uh, example of that leadership. I was just, uh, I guess it's two weeks ago now, I was, uh, I got some information online and some young people that I'd been working with said, you know, some other young people, this group that uh, exists, it's called Bromley Kids United. Folks might know the Bromley Heath Housing Projects in Jamaica Plain. Um, it, plagued by poverty, pl plagued by police violence, um, uh, police beating and stop and frisk and searching and harassing young people. Um, this march was organized by Bromley Kids United. And I know a lot of the youth activist groups in, Mass in, in Boston and, and across Massachusetts because it's part of my job. But uh, I'd never heard of Bromley Kids United. I was like, who are these people? It's young, like 13, 14, 15-year-old kids who've grown up in the project, lived in the projects their whole life, and they're organized, right? And they called a march. Four or 500 people came out in uh, one of the super, super cold nights last week, marching in the streets. And they said, you know, what are we going to do next? They went into um, North Station and shut the station down, just completely shut the station down uh, in front of like, and under the eyes of the MBTA police, who are some of the more br brutal police um, uh, in eastern Massachusetts and all across the state, uh, and uh, uh, Boston police. And there were about 500 of them. There were probably about 15, uh, 500 uh, young folks and activists and allies and maybe about 15 or 20 police. And the police had no, had no power in that. Right? They had no ability to control that, to contain that. And visually, you can see the shift of power, right? Like a 13-year-old black kid from Bromley Heath Housing Projects is directly challenging a police officer armed in Boston. They closed down all the, uh, the, the gates, the turnstiles, right? People were trying to get through, and they just stood there. And they said, we're here. They sang the freedom song. I can hear my brothers crying, I can't breathe. And people were trying to walk through. But allies came through, and they saw what was happening. They saw the young people. They saw the signs, and they stepped back, and they waited. This young woman blocked the turnstile, blocked the aisle, and a, a woman was just very upset and because her, you know, 15 seconds of her day had been disturbed, and she wanted to get through, and she was just irate, and a police officer came over, of course, to help uh, 
uh, an upper middle class white woman where uh, a young black person is, is slightly inconveniencing them. And the police officer said, move, just move your leg. And this young girl, 13, 14 years old, looked at the police officer and she said, no. I'll, I'll do it for the ones who respect me. And she said, she didn't respect me. And that, it might be sloppy, it might be messy, but this is people bringing back power that should be theirs, right? And sometimes we misstep, sometimes we go the wrong way, sometimes it's not exactly the best tactic. And that happened when people were fighting for the rights of people living with AIDS and HIV in the 80s and until today. Some of that didn't happen exactly in the right way, some of it was sloppy. But in a lot of that battle, you know, there were a lot of victories. In the earlier 80s, when people were fighting for, for rights um, uh, against the dirty wars in South America and Central America, some of that didn't go exactly the right way. Some of it was sloppy and some of it was dirty. But people got together. They won victories for people. They stopped killings. Um, and during the Vietnam War and the wars in Southeast Asia, uh, the genocides that occurred uh, across Southeast Asia, people fought and, the, and they won. And there was a lot of debate about tactics. We should do this. We shouldn't do that. But people fought and they won. Right now, the movement for Black Lives Matter in Boston and across the country, it's sort of in, a, in an adolescent stage. It's really, you know, maybe four months old at the oldest. And so I would say we should look at the strategies, we should look at the tactics, but far more important than, than all of that, in our hearts, we should follow the movement. In our hearts, we should be allies and accomplices if we're not black people. If we are, black, if we are young black people, directly affected, I should say, because I'm not as directly affected as, uh, uh, as these young folks, um, we should follow their leadership because they're the ones being beaten in the streets. They're the ones being harassed. They're the ones being, I don't say they're the ones dying. I don't say they're the ones being killed. I say they're the ones being murdered because that requires someone doing something actively and purposefully. They're the ones being killed. And one of the, you know, I won't do a lot of numbers uh, today, but one of the things that I think uh, is, is very important to remember, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which is an organization in New York which carries out uh, the legacy of work of, um, of Malcolm X, uh, did a study about three years ago and did analysis of, of people killed by police security forces or people under their control, of black people killed by police security forces or people under their control. And originally that report was going to be called Every 36 Hours which is chilling, right? So that means every weekend, you know, you start work on Friday morning, you're like, hey, it's the weekend, it's great. Before Sunday night rolls around, according to that, the initial statistics, two black people in this country would be murdered or killed by police forces or security forces. But while they were doing the research, they got so many more names of individuals who were killed or murdered by police in 2010. They had to change the name of the report from every 36 hours to every 28 hours. So the way I put that, just to put it in, in, uh, in understandable terms, easy to understand terms, before, far before you go to sleep tomorrow night, a black person in this country will be killed or murdered by the police or someone under their protection. Before we go to sleep tomorrow night. That's Mike Brown almost every day. That's John Crawford almost every day. And the question is, if we believe that is happening, right? And I, I, I just want to draw another analogy um, to that. Because we say, you know, police are supposed to serve and protect us. This is their job. But how, a lot of times they need something separate from, from 
the issue I'm working on to really understand it. But police killing and murdering people that they are paid, hired, trained, and armed to do. Let's do a comparison of that to something else. If I called an ambulance because I you know, fell down my stairs and I had a bad fracture in my leg, I called an ambulance. If the ambulance came, put me in the back, broke my other leg, and drove me 100 miles away from a hospital. That, that's what's happening with police. They're doing exactly the opposite of what their stated mission, what their publicly stated job is, right? It would be like going to the doctor and the doctor injects you with something to give you cancer. She's not gonna do that, right? We would be outraged if she did that, right? But that's what's happening with our police forces. And a lot of people say, well, you know, this one cop needs more training or this, it happens in Brattleboro, Vermont. It happens in Miami, Florida. It happens in Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon. It happens in San Diego. It happens in small towns, villages, hamlets all across this country. There is no place in this country that is immune to police violence, police, uh, uh, and and the threat of police murder for Black people. Tell someone just argued me. They said, "Well, what about?" I said, "All police forces are inside of themselves racist institutions." And someone said, someone said to me two nights ago, they said, well, what about a police station in an all-white area? I said, when a black person drives through an all-white area, I'm not going to answer that question. Just ask any black human being in this country when they drive through an all 100% white community if they feel less safe or more safe than they do in uh, uh, maybe a, you know, in Boston or New York or something like that. And the answer might differ, but clearly that is, and police in those areas are policing to say, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Why are you driving through somewhere, not that it's all white, but Brookline? And you ask um, black folks when they drive through Brookline, or you ask me, and I'll tell you how often we get stopped. I think in that, I just want to talk about, this is not, uh, as I said, it's not an individual police officer. It's not police in general, right? It's the entire system. We don't, in this country, have a system of, of uh, criminal justice. It would be good if we did. What we have is a system of racial control. So when we look for, at problems and say, well, the police did this, they shouldn't do that, they should be trained not to do it, that is what the police departments were created to do. Race codes in Massachusetts were created. The disorderly conduct statute with disturbing the peace, uh, still in, in that statute, there's being a person with no visible means of support. Being a person with no visible means of support was a law created in Massachusetts. So if it seems like, not if you are, but it seems like you don't have enough money to live, you could be arrested in this commonwealth, right, historically. Why was that a law, and when was it passed? It was passed right after a whole bunch of slave, former, I'll say formerly enslaved people, came up north and said, we'd like to live here and we'd like to be free. And the Commonwealth said, no, 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 you're not going to be free. What we're going to do instead is pass a whole bunch of codes to imprison you, and then we can hire you out as completely unpaid paid labor, or, or well, the sheriffs and, and police would get paid uh, that money. And it's kind of, for the, for, the, for the slave masters or for the jailers, it was a better situation, because when you had a slave, you had to feed, feed them, give them health care regularly, at least some, so they wouldn't die. When someone's a prisoner, you're like, well, you're here for a month. I don't really care. I can treat you as bad as possible. Those laws were passed for that reason. The most likely thing for a black person to get stopped, the most likely thing, the most likely excuse, disorderly conduct. 
disturbing the peace, trespassing, resisting arrest. Some would say coincidentally, I would say purposefully, the same laws that were created to control those formerly enslaved people. We have a system of racial control in this country that uh, imprisons quite close to the same number of people who are enslaved in this country, who were enslaved in this country. And that number of people, um, the, the body of those people, are their very descendants many times, the great, great, great grandchildren of those people. And I think that, uh, if we think that is a coincidence, I think uh, uh, that's far too uh, dramatic to be a coincidence. So I think if we accept uh, the premise I put forward that this is a system, right? It's, and it has names, right? The prison industrial complex, the school to prison pipeline, colonialism, imperialism, when it's done outside the country or when it's done um, to uh, uh, places that should be free like Puerto Rico and Guam and uh, Hawaii and the native nations in this country. It's a systemic process that reaches every part of this world and certainly every part of this country. And if we accept that it's a, it's a systemic process, not just institutions, it's not just the school system or the banking system or the prison system or the policing system, then institutional level solutions body cameras, receipts, individual solutions like that, while those are incredibly important, we should fight and struggle for those, right? We have to struggle for those to keep ourselves alive uh, until we get in the big victories. But we need to attack those systems, right? The system that keeps, you know, three million people in this country in jail, prison, probation, or parole, and the vast majority of those people are, uh, are black and brown people, and, and the extreme uh, majority of those people are, are poor people. Um, and I think uh, one thing is I, I just wanted to talk to people about is to think about other times. So an analogy I like to present to people uh, is if in maybe 1800, if a woman came to you, a heavyset black woman came to you and said, you know, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go out at 3 o'clock in the morning, and maybe we're in Maryland near a river, and I need you to get on a boat white person, and I need you to row down about a mile, and you're going to pick up a family, a black family, a formerly enslaved black family, and I need you to take them across the river. If you get caught, you'll probably go to prison for a long time, or you may be killed. How many people would say, I'm there, Underground Railroad, I would be there, and I would free people? I want to see you. Tell me, put your hands up. How many people would do it? How many people would go and say, I would free slaves? Because y'all have your hands down, you would not go? So some people are not responding, but um, if you would do that then, if you would say, I would be part of that movement, I would be there, I would use privileges that I have to make people free, right? That was the struggle then, and that is the struggle today. It takes a little bit different shape, but today we're doing that same struggle. Black people in this country are not fully free. People walk down the street terrified. People see blue lights and they think, I could die today. That happens, right? I'm a civil rights lawyer. I get pulled over by the police and I'm still worried. I'm like, well, do these people know who I am? Am I gonna tell them who I am? Does that matter? Should I, why do I have to tell someone who I am? What does that even mean? And do I use privilege to try to get my way out of this? That's, um, but that's a reality for, for people in this country. And I think, uh, using an example from the past, but going to the future, 
your grandchildren, or if you don't have children, you're like, I don't have children, but my, maybe my great-grandnieces and nephews and, and, and uh, uh, the children of my cousins. I have no doubt that those children will grow up in a world where, where black, it will be seen as almost impossible to understand that black people were not fully free in this country. And they'll ask someone, they'll say, what was it like? Because I read in a book that black people weren't free. What was that like? And they'll, sometime, if you live long enough, someone will ask you a question like that. And they'll say, what was it like then? in 2010, 2015, hopefully not in 2020. What was it like? And you'll tell them what it was like about the prisons, about beatings, about stop and frisk, about murders. And then they'll say, what did you do? And there's really two choices. You can say, well, you know, I had a dog and the dog was sick and I had to deal with that. And this thing was going on at work. And some, you know, because I, I was trying to get this promotion at work and some things were going on at work. Or you can say, we were there and we struggled and we fought and we went to jail and we sang and we ate together and we planned together and we plotted together and we th overthrew it and we ripped the chains off together with people of color, with black people, and we won, right? And that's the story that I want, not for my sake, not for our sake, but for all of our sakes. That story will be told 20 years from now, 40 years from now, and forever in this country. Um, and so that is, uh, is something, I think that's a blessing that's brought to us in this time, because this um, is uh, the new civil rights movement, if, if we want it to be. Um, and it, as I said, uh, before. It'll be sloppy, we'll make mistakes, but there are a lot of organizations out there that Barbara mentioned some of them. There's a, an organization called the Deep Abiding Love Project that's doing nonviolent civil disobedience trainings, that's uh, bringing graphics, that's bringing imagery um, to all of this. Uh, uh, find them online, you can find them uh, in the streets, you can find them um, in the neighborhoods. Um, Bikes Not Bombs uh, is an organization, many, many of their members are organizing, uh, struggling, um, doing trainings, Youth Against Mass Incarceration, um, the Boston Coalition for Police Accountability, uh, Black Life Matters, uh, and I'll say the, all the local ones, Black Life Matters New Bedford, Black Life Matters Boston, Black Life Matters Cambridge, and Black Life Matters 413, which is out in, in Western Mass. Those are all organizations that are taking the lead, um, sort of taking the helm and steering the struggle locally in Eastern and Western Massachusetts, uh, struggling and winning victories that are challenging police brutality. They're challenging the narrative in the media. They're making their own media um, and they're winning. So those are organizations that I think uh, that's one thing directly we can do is follow them, support them financially, support them with our feet, um, support them when they go into in courts. Uh, people are being arrested and charged with uh, minor and some more major crimes. Uh, another thing we can do is film the police. Anytime you see police brutality, anytime you see police harassing uh, people of color, anytime you see police stopping people of color, they're probably harassing them, um, harassing us. Uh, stand there, be a witness, film what is happening. Um, go to court and support our, um, uh, our protesters and freedom fighters who are, um, who are fighting and struggling, and they're doing that inside the courtrooms by jamming up the courtrooms. Um, this, right now, is the new civil rights movement, if you want it to be. This right now is the new civil rights movement if we want it to be. This is the new civil rights movement if we make it be that.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.